I'm Effie Parks. Welcome to Once Upon a Jane, the podcast. This is a place I created for us to connect and share the stories of our not-so-typical lives. Raising kids who are born with rare genetic syndromes and other types of disabilities can feel pretty isolating. What I know for sure is that when we can hear the triumphs and challenges from others who get it, we can find a lot more laughter, a lot more hope, and feel a lot less alone. I believe there are some magical healing powers that can happen for all of us through sharing our stories, and I'll take all the help I can get. Hi, everyone. Thanks for listening today. This is Once Upon a Gene, and I am your host, Effie Parks. Global Genes is hosting a virtual unsummit, 10 days of events from the September 15th to the 25th. And on the 16th, 17th, and 18th of September, there is a watch party with three nights showing three short films from the Disorder Channel. I am so excited to be included as the moderator for night two on September 17th. So go check it out and sign up at globalgenes.org. Today's episode is connected to episode 38 with Taylor Kane. She's the author of Rare Like Us and founder of RememberTheGirls.org. If you haven't heard that episode yet, you should press pause and go back to that one first and definitely go buy her book. My guest today is actually Taylor's mom. And after reading her book, I could not stop thinking about this woman and what she went through. She had two toddlers at home when her husband, John, was suddenly diagnosed and dying from a rare disorder called adrenoleukodystrophy, ALD. And reading about the stories of caregiving in Taylor's book was so incredibly heart-wrenching and meaningful and gripping. Diane was so honest and how she conveyed these moments to her children. I'm just in awe of her strength and her grit and her grace throughout it. There's so much to unpack as a caregiver, and I'm, I'm just really grateful to people who share their stories. You never know who's listening and who really needs to hear that connection at the moment. Please enjoy my conversation with super badass mom, Diane Kane. Hi, Diane. Welcome to the show. Hi. Thank you for joining me. I am so excited to talk to you. Oh, thank you for having me. Yes. When I was reading your daughter Taylor's memoir, Rare Like Us, my... My heart was just twisted and I couldn't stop thinking about you. So I just wanted to thank you and first say that I'm so sorry for the loss of your husband. Oh, thank you. So I think uh, like a lot of people, I've never really asked personal questions to someone who's lost their spouse. So again, thanks for allowing me this opportunity. And I apologize in advance if I say something wrong. I'm learning. Oh, no, that's okay. And it it was quite a while ago. At this point, I, uh, he passed away in 2003. How did the two of you meet? Well, we were both attorneys and we just met in the course of practicing law. We met, I, we both worked in Philadelphia and we met there and we were friends for a while. And then eventually uh, we ended up getting married. So let's let's tell everybody what ALD is. Okay. ALD is short for adrenal leukodystrophy. My husband was diagnosed with ALD a few years after we were married. And um, that was the disease that he ended up passing away from. It's a rare hereditary disease. Um, We later found out that it, you know, it had run in his family. He had a twin brother that ended up also passing away from ALD. And we found out, you know, that various other relatives, he had a big family and other cousins had had it. And his sister was a carrier of it. His other brother had it as well. 
So it ended up that it had run pretty extensively throughout his family, but we really didn't know it at the time. Wow. Yeah. And it just sort of started popping up once everyone was into adulthood then? Yeah, basically. Well, it's kind of a a disease that was not discovered really early on. Um, We later found out that one of like his third, a third cousin, their whole family had had it. It was called something else back then. And no one really knew what it was. It's an excellent condition. So it mainly affects males. His mother's brothers had passed away. And, you know, at that time they had thought it was the flu or something like that. But, you know, when we traced it back, it turned out that it was, it was ALD. Um, But they just didn't know it at the time because it was so rare. And it was something that, you know, had a relatively recent diagnosis and discovery of the gene and things like that. So when did you notice symptoms that started with John? A couple of years after we were married, I noticed that he started acting really different than he had in the past. He had always been really neat and organized and he started, you know, leaving things around the house, not being as concerned with everything being clean. He start, his personality started changing a little bit. He started staying up late. Sometimes he would go in late to work, which he never did before. He was always like an early bird. Little things like that. And, you know, I didn't think much of it at the time. It came on pretty slowly and you know, I had only been married a couple of years and we had two young, uh, what actually, well, we had Taylor, I was pregnant with my, my son and, you know, I thought it was stress or something like that at first. So I didn't really put together the symptoms until there were a couple of times where he, he told me he was going to work and I would call him at work and it turned out that he wasn't there. And I thought, oh my gosh, like who knows where he is? He's having a midlife crisis or Something like that. And, you know, I said, let's go to marriage counseling. We went and, yeah. you know, he, he swore everything was fine. But I think the counselor noticed something and said, felt that he should get some tests. And he got a brain scan, which showed that he had ALD. I was kind of shocked because I really, you know, I, I really didn't think it was a medical issue. Yeah, you don't think you're going to get a diagnosis out of marriage counseling. Exactly. Wow. Thank God for that counselor to notice some sort of, you know, sign that pointed in the direction to kind of get some more help in that area. Exactly. Because in in fact, both of us were talking and we were both like, oh, this is ridiculous. We don't need to spend money on an MRI. He's just trying to do this to make money or something like that, you know, but (laughs) but he was right. So what happened after you got this brain scan and the diagnosis of ALD? Well, the radiologist called him and basically told him what the disease was and said, it's a rare disease. You need to see a specialist. We made an appointment with a doctor, a neurologist at the Kennedy Krieger Institute, which is a hospital that specializes rare diseases uh, like ALD. You know, we had to wait a couple of weeks for an appointment. In the meantime, I was researching it on the computer to, you know, to learn as much as I could about it. And everything I saw was, you know, was was bad news. Everything I read said there was just no cure and nothing really that could be done. I was, I tried to find medications. I, you know, I just researched and researched and really couldn't find much hope. So yeah, we just, we, we kept the doctor's appointment. And uh, when we spoke to the neurologist, he kind of confirmed what I had read, um, that there basically was no treatment at the time. There were a few men who had tried bone marrow transplants, but at that time, Uh, They said like 80% of them had died just from the transplant. So um, we had, we considered that a little bit at the beginning to see maybe if that would help halt the disease, but 
the the chances of him living were so slim that the doctor kind of recommended against it at that point. So he basically just said, you know, he probably has two to three years to live and just go home, you know, try to enjoy the time you have left. And that was basically it. I just can't even imagine, like, taking this information in, adjusting to the fact that your husband is going to die, having two toddlers at home that you still have to cook, cook dinner for. Right. The bills are piling up and you're working. What happened to you? Like, how were you able to manage this situation and cope with it along the way? Did you have to like compartmentalize things and just be that mom who was like lifting a car? <laughs> well, I mean, it, you know, at first it was so hard to believe. I would, you know, wake you wake up every day and I would feel like, oh, it's not. And then I would remember, oh, my gosh, like my husband's going to die soon. What am I going to do? It was it was really hard to to grasp at first. And I just, you know, went about things as normal, you know, as normally as I could. I mean, I had to process a lot and I, I wanted to make sure that I tried to keep things as normal as I could for my kids because I didn't exactly know what was going to happen to him. At the same time, I kind of had some hope, like maybe they will find a cure. Yeah, I just didn't know what to do. So I just tried to go on the, the best that I could. He did as well. At that time, he was, uh, it was hard for me to tell how much he really understood. He came across like he understood everything, but I had a feeling that he, he didn't really get it. Yeah. Or maybe I guess when you're in that kind of situation, you just really don't fully go there. I don't know. Yeah, I don't I don't know. I, I couldn't really figure it out. It didn't seem to phase him as much as it did me. He just went about his life as normal. At first, he went to work, you know, he just went out with his friends. Uh, did the normal things. It was more it was kind of shocking to me. I started planning, you know, what am I going to do? I, I had been working. Both of my kids were in daycare and I had been working like 25 to 30 hours a week so I could be home a little more. But I was worried that, you know, he, he might lose his job. He's going to I'm going to need to get insurance. I'm going to have to work full time. So I tried to get some help at that point. I hired like a nanny babysitter who could be there a little more with my kids so I could increase my hours at work. And I just, you know, tried to get prepared for whatever was going to happen next. I remember, too, that your friend's ex-husband, Sam, I believe his name was, also ended up living with you guys for a little while to help manage just the home stuff. Yeah, he did. And as things, you know, got harder and harder, as my husband's condition began to deteriorate, it, it became really hard for me to take care of him and the kids and and work at the same time. I mean, just taking care of him would have been like a full-time job. It was hard. You know, he, he got to the point where he really couldn't move. So even just trying to change the sheets on his bed, you know, trying to roll over like a 200 pound man and try to figure out how to change the sheets. And it, it, it could take me just an hour to do that. And then my kids would be screaming in another room. And it, it was very, it was way uh, more difficult than I could have really imagined just the amount of time it took to take care of him, you know, he couldn't swallow, cutting up his food in little pieces. You know, it would take a long time for him to, to try to get him to eat, things like that. So it was it was something that was really time consuming. And then there were, you know, the medical bills were piling up on top of that. And there was a lot of paperwork I had to get figured out. So it was just something that was really time consuming. So I found that, you know, I, I ended up having, you know, I had my nanny. I, I had, I was able to get through hospice, like a nurse's aide that would come in a couple times a week. And I did have my friend's ex-husband ended up living in our basement because he needed a place of live to live, but he did end up being a really big help to me as well. So with a, a bunch of help, I was able to 
you know, manage everything. I know. I was like, oh, God, thank God she has a nanny and help her give that lady another nanny, somebody. Yeah, I couldn't have done it without all the help that I ended up having. So I know his health started declining really rapidly and you kept him at home the entire time during his care and on hospice. How did you come to the decision to keep him home, you know, with your kids there and seeing him and his health deteriorating as opposed to admitting him into a facility? Well, the kids liked being around him still. And he sometimes he still, he, you know, I, he, I could tell he appreciated being with them. He would he didn't quite know what he was doing, but he would like, I would put them on sitting on his bed and they would, he would say he was taking them on a ride in his bed and he would pretend they were going up to the moon and things like that. And they would, <laughs> just, they would sit there and color with him and read with him. And, you know, I, I didn't want to take him out of the house. He did get, I did get hospice care pretty early on. He was on hospice for two years, which most people think of hospice as something that just comes in you know, the last couple of days of life or something like that. But we had hospice for two years because they really, they really didn't know. I mean, he could have, I guess he could have passed away at any time. They didn't really know um, when he was going to. And I believe, I believe hospice is supposed to be, if you have a diagnosis of that, you could live less than six months or, or something to that effect. So, but he did end up being on it for a long time. And that was also a huge, huge help to me. I mean, they, they came all the time. They gave me a lot of information. They had, you know, yeah. they knew all the medical stuff that I didn't know. So with, with having the help that I did and with having him on hospice and having a hospice nurse come in, I didn't really feel the need to have to have him move out of the house for, for any reason. The only reason that I would have was because I would sometimes have people say to me, or I would hear that they said, like, how could she keep uh, you know, her kids growing up in an environment like that, where, you know, with all of this going on, the kids would be better off if he was somewhere else. So I would, I, sometimes there would be a tug of war in my mind, be, you know, whether, which was best for my kids. But, you know, I just went with my heart and did what I felt was the best thing to do. Well, I have to tell you, that is my most favorite part of your story. I just think it's so amazing that Yes, you were able to get that help to be able to do that. But I mean, I loved the photos and the stories of the kids up on on John's bed and everything. It was just so touching. And it, and it clearly, you know, paved the way for your yeah. kids and the way like they're both just such fierce advocates, especially Taylor. And I I think that they just gained so much yeah. uh, life, everything from being around their dad in those in in that situation. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I definitely think that too, especially Taylor. Now, my son was a little younger. He was, he was only one when my husband got sick. And he does, at this point, he doesn't remember that much. He was only three when he passed away. So he was young. But Taylor was, Taylor was a, a couple years older and she was able to understand more. She, you know, she remembered it. She was, she was always kind of advanced for her age. And she, she, the hospice gave her counseling at that time. He was too young, but, they came in and they had a counselor for her and they, you know, would read stories with her about death and things like that. So she was able to, um, you know, to deal with it with a lot of help. And I do, and she would help the hospice nurses feed, feed him and things like that. So I think it did rub off on her, you know, in a good way. Yeah. In a lot of good ways. I mean, she's incredible. So I know that you all your entire family started like 
putting things into action. You started having fundraisers. Uh, Taylor did a couple speaking things when she was just a little tiny thing. Did did holding these fundraisers and kind of going out into the community help manage some of the stress and the trauma that was happening at home? Yeah, it definitely did. I mean, for me and for her, I mean, it it made it definitely made us both feel like we were doing something positive um, and that everything wasn't all, you know, everything wasn't negative, that something positive could come out of it. When she was, yeah, really little, like in kindergarten, she, the United Way had asked us to speak at a couple events and she would go and she would, you know, speak a little bit what she could say in kindergarten, but she always really enjoyed doing that kind of thing. And yeah, that did help us a lot. Were you able to find ways like just for yourself to kind of help you cope during that time? Or did you sort of deal with that afterwards? I think what helped me cope was just having the number of people around me that I did. I, you know, my, the nanny that I hired that was with my kids during the day, she was the same age as me and we became very friendly and, you know, it, it kind of felt like a, a big, and with Sam there, it kind of felt like a big family there. So having, you know, having those people around was, was what really helped me cope with everything. They all knew what was going on. It wasn't like there was anything I couldn't say to them because they were right in the house. So it wasn't, you know, shocking to them. You know, I couldn't go out and tell, go to work and talk to those, you know, the people at work the same way that I could talk to all the people that were in my house. So I felt like I always had people there that I could talk to. And, and even the hospice nurses would talk to me. So I, I did feel like I had uh, that, that support. So that really helped me a lot. Yeah. I mean, there's nothing like being able to talk to someone who gets, who gets it. Just nothing. Right. Exactly. And I'm assuming there weren't Facebook groups yet when John was sick. Any sort of online community. Yeah. I, believe me, I wish that there was. I mean, now that, you know, there are all these online communities, that would have been great. And, and just because his disease was so rare, I really didn't know anyone and I didn't know what to expect. Now he, I did get in touch with his third, I think it was like a third cousin. She had one son that had passed away. And then she had another son that was basically in a vegetative state. He had been like that for like 10 years and she was taking care of him in her house. And she knew everything. She, you know, I went up to see her. She lived in Pennsylvania. I saw her son. So I could kind of know what to expect. She, she taught me so many things. She taught me how to change the sheets with a Hoyer lift. She changed, she taught me how to change diapers. She told me, you know, and I, I kind she taught, she really helped me more than anything because her son, you know, had, had the same, basically the same symptoms that my husband had and was in the same shape. So she told me all, you know, taught me a lot of things. So that was really a huge help to me. Yeah, I mean, you're so lucky to have found her because even just in the beginning for me, when I was in the depths of this or that, I would stop and be like, how did these families do this before the internet? Like, how did they do it? I I just, I think about that so much because I, I just don't know how you could move through things like that, feeling as alone as you already feel when you become a part of the rare disease community, let alone when you were actually alone in the fact that you really didn't know anyone else like you. Yeah, it, that was really hard. And, and I would have really appreciated having having some kind of group. They didn't have Facebook. They just had the internet so I could like research some articles. But I didn't even have a cell phone back then. 
So, <laughs> so yeah. And, and in fact, when we, uh, we tried to get a doctor in, in our area for him to see, so we didn't have to travel for hours and hours and we couldn't even find a doctor that treated his condition. So he had to treat with a doctor with a neurologist that specialized in Lou Gehrig's disease because it was kind of a similar disease. So yeah, it was hard to find anyone who, who around here, around who knew anything, you know, who had any experience. Yeah. What did you learn then? Or what do you remember now about it? Some of like the doses of wisdom that you learned or would like to pass on to other caregivers who are taking care of someone for two years or 40 years? One of the main things would be that you need to be able to accept help from people. I'm, I've always been the kind of person that I would never want to ask anyone for help. I, I kind of feel guilty if anyone, you know, even offers to help me. I don't, I don't do that, but you know, you really do need help. I mean, it can be so overwhelming and so time consuming and, you know, you, you do have to be able to, to accept help from people. I would also say that it's good if you can, you know, find a way to take some time for yourself. I would even, you know, it would, at first before I had, before I had help there, I couldn't even, you know, go out of my house to take a run or anything like that. Like I couldn't get out for five minutes, but after, you know, once I had like Sam living in the house, you know, I could actually go out and run and things like that. So that helped me a lot being able to just even get away for a couple minutes. And I get, and the other thing that I would say too, is the people that ended up helping me the most were not the people who I would have expected to, to help me at the beginning. I think you really find out who your friends are during something like this. A lot of the people who ended up, you know, being my friends and being the ones that helped me a lot were people that I didn't even know before. And, and there were some people who we were really good friends with who never said a word, never came over. So, so, you know, it was just kind of surprising how you really find out who your friends are. I love that piece of the unexpected angels that just kind of pop up in times like this. It, it is really, exactly. it is really amazing. And there's just a connection that is, I mean, you can't even really explain it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I agree with you. Accepting help is huge. And I know I'm always kind of harping on that to new diagnosed parents, because you can't do this alone. And you'll burst if you try. Right. Definitely. And yeah, even just getting out of the house for a few minutes is so much of a recharge when you're living in like this fight or flight mode constantly. Yeah. That's intense. So how do you think that this experience shaped you differently and maybe even your kids at this point? It made me appreciate how hard it is to be a caregiver. I really wouldn't have expected it to be as hard as it was, you know, it, it, it really was so overwhelming, just the amount of things that amount of, you know, how, how long little things would take to do changing sheets or something, you know, just something simple like that. And, you know, obviously it got way more difficult and way harder than that. So I just really have a new appreciation for anyone that's a caregiver. And I know how important it is for people to, you know, offer to help, even to do a little thing, it makes a big difference. And I don't think um, a lot of people realize that unless they've been in the situation themselves. Yeah. I mean, I only have a four-year-old who I have to move around the house and do all those things for. I can't imagine it being a 180-pound man. So, yeah, there's there's so much other than obviously the emotional and the mental uh, work. There's so much physical 
Exactly. There's so many physical chores involved that, yeah, take forever. Whew, Diane, I'm really in awe of you. And I'm just, I, I think you're so amazing and your story is incredible. And I'm so glad you relayed this story on to Taylor so she could write that beautiful book because it's not just important for patients and you know it's it's so important for the caregivers too I understand it's coming from a lot of Taylor's experience but the behind the scenes stuff that was happening is so vital for other caregivers to connect with and I think also for our friends and family right to kind of have a little peek into what's really going on behind closed doors so I hope everybody can go find Taylor's book Rare Like Us at your favorite bookstore or wherever books are sold. It's such an amazing book and your family's story really touched me and I can't stop thinking about it. Thank you. Well, yeah, I mean, Taylor, yeah, she's, she's, I'm, I'm really proud of the way that, that she's been able to come through this. I mean, she is a really passionate advocate for other people and she's kind of been like that from the time she was little. She's always you know, whenever she sees a problem or an issue or something that's not right or someone hurt, she's always like the first one to jump in and try to fix it herself. So um, she doesn't just sit back and, you know, complain or expect someone else to take care of things. She's always kind of had the confidence that she could actually do something to try to make a difference. And she's done that, you know, in a lot of aspects of her life, not just with her advocacy for rare diseases, but, you know, other things as well. She's just always been that kind of a person. So you know, I'm glad that the situation didn't really seem to have too much of a negative effect on her that way, at least. And, and you know, I think it's actually had a, a positive impact on her life. I remember a part in the book where she was saying something to you like, Mom, what can I do today to make the world a better place? And I was just like, dude, she's every parent's dream child. Wow. <laughs> she she has, has her moments. <laughs> sure, sure. I'm sure the teenage the teenage girl was super fun. I'm just I'm really impressed. And you raised such amazing kids. And I think you're awesome. And I think that you are full of grace. And you're an inspiration to me as a caregiver. And I'm just really thankful thankful that your family is here and sharing their stories because it's really important. Oh, oh, thank you. Diane, is there anything else that you would like to leave for our listeners? Well, I, I do, like I said, I do feel like if you are in the position of caregiving, advocating for yourself is, is a big thing, taking time for yourself and accepting help. I would just say those are, those are the three biggest things. All right. Thanks, Diane. I really appreciate talking to you today. It was so fun. Thank you. It was nice talking to you, too. I hope you've been enjoying this podcast. If you like what you hear, please share this show with your people and please make sure to rate and review it on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also head over to Instagram, Facebook and Twitter to connect with me and stay updated on the show. If you're interested in sharing your story or if you have anything you would like to contribute, please submit it to my website at effieparks.com. Thank you so much for listening to the show and for supporting me along the way. I appreciate y'all so much. I don't know what kind of day you're having, but if you need a little pick-me-up, Ford's got you.